we don't like winners either. So flip it <laughs> off and uh, yeah, go Southern Hemisphere during our winter and then come back when it starts getting nice around April, right? That's my philosophy for life. <laughs> The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 395. In Norway, the word Texas is slang for crazy. I'll let you decide if that's fair or not. One of my favorite things to do is to highlight real life examples of people who are living life on their own terms. People are saying, I want to do work that I love. I want to be able to travel when I want. I want to have this life of freedom. And in today's episode, we're going to talk to Anna all about how she's able to do that, all about how she's able to budget for indefinite travel, how she was she was able to make freelancing work for her. And I'll tell you, there must be something in the air down there in Austin, Texas, where Anna home bases when she's not traveling, because my favorite travel shoe company, Suaves, is also based out of Austin, Texas, and is run by people who are just saying, we have an idea, we wanted to make a great travel shoe, and they went out and did it. And they created a product that now is helping other people have better travel experiences. So if you're looking for the best travel shoe out there, the one that I've been wearing for the last six months, head on over to suaves.com. It's run by a small company in Austin, Texas. I absolutely am in love with their shoes. So is Heather. So it feels really good to be able to support a small company getting a shoe out there, kind of getting their foot into the door, no pun intended, of, of such a big market there. So if you want to check that out, if you want the best travel shoe, suaves.com. Don't forget you can use the promo code EPOP and that will get you 15% off anything you order. Speaking of small companies that we absolutely love to support, if you guys have listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know that we love our Tortuga backpacks. Now, Tortuga backpacks, not headquartered in Austin, Texas, although that would have been great parallelism, right, if they were all in Austin, Texas. It's headquartered in the great state of California. But ever since the beginning, when Tortuga backpacks came out, and this is why I really love them, they were focused on making a backpack for travelers. They weren't a company who was going to make a travel backpack, but they were also making clothing and hiking backpacks and all this other gear. They said, we are going to focus on one thing and we are going to do it very well. And that one thing that they were focused on was making a backpack specifically for travelers. And of course that spoke to me because I was someone who was a traveler who was looking for the best carry-on size backpack. And so I absolutely love, love, love supporting small companies that do something, take initiative and say, all right, we want to do one thing. We want to do it really well and put all their eggs in that basket and push forward to making the best possible product. Tortuga Backpacks has done that with their travel backpacks. You can check it out over at tortugabackpacks.com slash EPOP. That's how you're going to be able to get 10% off anything you order. Remember, tortugabackpacks.com slash EPOP. That will give you 10% off anything that you order there.
Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is someone whose freelance work has been featured in Afar, Travel and Leisure, and Rolling Stone, who's been to 51 countries on six continents, and whose book, Good With Money, a guide to prioritizing, spending, maximizing savings, and traveling more, shows you how she has been able to travel nonstop for 10 years on an average income of $30,000. Anna Mazurk from TravelLikeAnna.com. Anna, thanks for joining me today, and a huge welcome. Thanks, Travis. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. And it's always nice for me to record with someone I got the pleasure of meeting in person, which we got to do last Ju- Ju- June? I think it was September. September. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. All right. It's June <laughs> this year. It was September last year yeah. uh, at TravelCon. So it's great to chat with you again. And I love, love, love the idea behind the book because, and we're going to get it, we're going to touch on this a ton, Anna, but this idea of either people think you have to be a crazy budget traveler or Mm -hmm. you have to, you know, or you're taking like awesome yachts and these Viking cruises around (laughs) the world that are like 15K a person. And you're saying, wait a second, there, there's a lot of middle ground and we're going to figure out where people fall on that. We, Heather and I called our travel sweet spot. So I assume that's kind of what your book is looking at too, is this idea of like, where is each person's travel sweet spot? Exactly. That's correct. What kicked it all off for you? This idea of loving a life of travel and saying, I'm not going to vacation, but travel is going to be my life. Like I'm going to do stuff with travel in my work. I'm going to travel for fun. I'm going to meld it all together into this this cool cauldron uh, of a great lifestyle. Why is it that travel holds such like a draw for you? So I'll sort of tell you the origin story of how I kind of built this life. So two sort of things happened. I studied abroad when I was in college in England, and that's where I fell in love with traveling and photography, which have become my life. And ever since then, I really haven't been able to get rid of the travel bug. And then fast forward a few years, I'd graduated from college, and then I graduated from graduate school. I uh, have my master's in photojournalism from the University of Missouri. And in 2008, the recession happened, and the world sort of forever changed. And it was one of those situations where recessions aren't good for freelance photographers. (laughs) All of a sudden, I had an abundance of time. And so I took uh, advantage of that, and I actually moved to Australia on a work visa. And that sort of led me down the path of sort of... It was sort of a blessing in disguise in a lot of ways, the recession sort of led me into the life that I'm in now. It's like I can travel for a living. And so I moved to Australia in a work visa. That's how I got into shooting for Rolling Stone. And then I also got a job running photo trips in Asia and then never really kind of looked back. Travel has always sort of been my life and everything that I do from now on sort of revolves around it. What do you think would have happened if the recession hadn't happened? If you had come out of uh, come out with that degree and it was just a typical normal economy or even like a burgeoning economy like we have here in 2019, do you think you would have been as adamant about trying to make travel a part of it? Or do you think maybe you would have fallen into a more typical lifestyle? Well, it's funny because I actually had this debate before the recession hit. So I'd been out of graduate school for about a year. I'd been interning and then I'd gotten a job. I was a contract photographer for Southern Living Magazine. I was based in Birmingham, Alabama, and I was getting paid to travel. Like I was living the life. I was doing some other things on the side. And then so I was making it the the most money I'd ever made, especially being out of school. So life was great. I really thought like, you know, you think when things are going up, they're going to keep going up. 
And the recession sort of blindsided me. All of my work disappeared. I was working in a newspaper part-time and they started to have buyouts. And I'd already sort of planned to move abroad to Australia. It's a date I'd kind of set on my calendar. When my lease ends, I'm going to move. And this was, I was going to move in August 20, 2008, pardon me. And everything started to kind of fall apart a few months prior. And I already had the Australia plan. I was like, I'm going to quit. I'm going to do this. But work was going so well that it just seemed like a terrible idea career-wise. And I had this internal debate about what to do. But when everything started to fall apart, it just made my decision clear. I'm like, this is what I have to do. What so. was it about Australia that was calling to you even before things fell apart? Why was it that you said, I'm going to move to Australia and I'm going to like uproot my life that that is good and then <laughs> turned out not to be as great uh, a couple months later? Why, why there? Well, they just instituted a new work visa for Americans, a working holiday visa, which they still have in place. So for 18 to 30 year olds, you could go and work anywhere for a year. And so that it just was the easiest way to kind of go and have a way to, because I, you know, I wasn't independently wealthy. I had some money saved. I had 10 grand saved before I left for the trip, but still it wasn't enough to live on. <laughs> so I was obviously going to work. So that sort of led to that. And and honestly, like I really always was drawn to Asia. I really wanted to go to Thailand. For some reason, Australia seemed closer to Thailand. <laughs> I, closer, <laughs> a little bit closer than the US, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny. Um, so that was kind of part of the reasoning there. And then I actually got a job in Asia. And I worked in Asia for five years running photo trips after that. Asia is a big part of my life now. I actually just got back from uh, five months in Asia in the end of February. And I actually went back to Australia for the first time in 10 years. So it's kind of interesting. This trip. <laughs> funny how your perception of places change after you've been there. Like I remember, I, I was just having this conversation with a friend of mine, and and she lives in in Africa. I mean, I say in Africa. Obviously, that's a huge continent. But my perception, I, I have not much of a perception of Africa because I've only been to South Africa and and been through a little bit of parts of Kenya. So it's hard for me to envision what her life looks like there. But if someone says to me hey, I live in Thailand, or hey, I live in Australia, because I've been there, I I can place myself in their shoes pretty easily. And hearing you say that, like, oh, well, Australia is closer to Thailand, I want to be in Thailand, that was almost my perception when I moved to Japan was, well, I want to do something totally different. So we moved to Japan, and because I was in Japan, we were going all around Southeast Asia, all around Australia. They're not that close, but they're just a lot closer than the East Coast to the US, right? Very true. Very true. And uh, <laughs> to Texas as well, it's definitely a lot closer. <laughs> yeah. And so you get there and all of a sudden, I think it's just your, your perception is so different. Now you're like, wow, I could hop down to this place I've always dreamed of. And it's only seven hours. Whereas, you know, I'm not going to get on a flight for seven hours to go from the US somewhere that I've been before. But because it's new, it's like, oh, no big deal. Let me just go and do that. So let's talk a little bit about the different hats you wear because you've melded this life together and, and a few of the things that you really, really love, travel, photography, writing. How have you been able to make that life work? Because you mentioned you're a photojournalist um, for Southern Living and a contract worker, and then you moved to Australia. So what does it look like since then? This career is a freelancer. Yes. So basically the way that a lot of my work revolves around photography and traveling. So I'd say a good chunk of my work now is a lot of corporate photography for big companies um, in Austin. I do a lot of work for Facebook. I also, another portion of my work is um, writing for publications, travel magazines. So 
like local city publications, bigger magazines like Afara, things like that. So I'm doing photography and writing for those. I also do a lot of teaching. So I teach part-time at Texas State University, which is just outside of Austin, Texas, where I live. Well, that's my home base, technically, because I don't really live anywhere, technically, right now. And so I teach there part-time. I was teaching photojournalism on campus, but now I teach a course on freelancing that I built and designed myself. I also run photo trips in the summer. So I worked in Asia for five years running photo trips for high school students. Now I work for the National Geographic brand of trips. I ran their student trips for a few years. And this summer I'm actually working in Alaska for their um, adult-based trips, which is run through a company called Lindblad. So, so that's sort of the overall. Yeah, thing. you're doing a lot. I guess it seems to me that you thrive in having multiple, I, I mean, and from a business perspective, you say multiple income streams, but in your life, it just seems like multiple interesting things that you get to do. Exactly. And part of it is just diversity is key when it comes to freelancing. The more diverse your income is, the better. That's one of the biggest lessons that I learned in 2008 when everything sort of fall apart, fell apart. I got to see, okay, hey, it's better if you have your income coming from different places. These are all my interests too. I enjoy everything that I do. I really love teaching. It's sort of my way of helping because when I was in graduate school, no one really told you anything about the business side of the world. And a lot of it I've had to learn on my own. And when I was teaching on campus here at Texas State, I always took two um, classes out of the semester where I talked about business and freelancing. And that was always the, the two weeks the students loved the most. And so that's what gave me the idea to build the course. And nobody else was really doing that. And that's sort of been something that has really kind of blown up. People, the students love it. They say it's super helpful. And I've been teaching that class now for about a year. And then I actually have been doing some lectures about similar things at the University of Texas here in Austin as well. So it's something that I'm really passionate about. So I'm able to kind of tie that all in together um, and hopefully make it easier for these students than it was for me. <laughs> yeah, I think that is ultimately why a lot of people like us get into the field or fields that we get into. Either A, it's a passion project, like, okay, I love photography, I love traveling, so I'm going to figure out a way to, a way to make this work. Or it's I wish I had this. Like, can I just help someone not have as much heartache, heartbreak, tears? And if I can, how awesome is it that I can get paid to teach someone something that's not only going to help them, but is going to be a gift for you too, because you're getting like that experience was not for nothing, right? And it's not that you just came out on the other side. Now you're saying, hey, I had this experience, you don't have to do it. And so I think that's pretty neat that you're doing it at a university level, because often we see people do it in this realm on a, hey, you have an online course on Teachable or whatever, you're selling your online course. You're actually doing it in an institutional level, which is different and interesting. Well, I feel like it has the most impact for the, the sort of the niche I'm trying to go for. My background is journalism. These are journalism students. So I feel like I know what it's like to be there. So I'm trying to kind of help them and move forward with it. And it's something that I, I mean, I do really enjoy it. I do want to help. And that's sort of been my thing. It's like, how can I help in life? And that's one of those things where I feel like this is sort of my niche. And I've been doing a lot of research about it. I've been interviewing other freelancers as well. And it's been really fascinating. I've really learned a lot. So it's something that <laughs> I wish younger Anna had thought to do this. <laughs> for, sure, for sure. You don't know what you don't know, right? What If you were given an opportunity, would you do any of the things that you're doing full time like I, I know this is our question but because i have a bunch of projects too so i think about this in my own head it's like all oh, five different quote-unquote jobs right is there any of those that if someone said hey you're gonna we're gonna give you a professorship and you you could teach full time and you'd say all right that's enough for me 
to like give up these other freedoms or, hey, you're going to be a full-time photojournalist for this magazine. Is there anything that you would do and give up that freedom if it was full-time? It's a very, that's a very good question. I'd say I can maybe split half the year between a couple of the things. I, as much as I love teaching, I don't like to sit still for too long. So I'd maybe teach for one semester if they'd give me one half the year off, <laughs> vice versa, and able to do both projects. Part of being freelance is because I, I love the freedom. I have the freedom to work on the different things. I'm not sort of locked into one thing. So it kind of gives me, because you know, I had time to write, do my book project and things like that, that I wouldn't have had time to do had I been teaching full time or doing any of the things that I did previously. So for me, it's a little bit more about the freedom. Um, but I feel like I, instead of just choosing one over the other, I'd like to maybe split it. I, you know, I wouldn't mind spending half the year doing one and half the year doing the other full time. I just like that balance. Yeah. Freelance for me seems daunting because I, I'm not a freelancer. And so whenever someone is, I, it, it seems nerve wracking to me because I'm always like, well, where are you finding those next kinds? So we're not going to do a whole podcast here on just freelancing, but I am interested to hear what you found in the 11 years that you've been doing this as like what has made it easier for you to say yes i'm freelance yes you know i get to choose what i get to work on but i i know i um, i have some sort of base or or is there a base of you know either clients or a financial base where you know all right i'm going to be making x amount because i've done this for so many years i can almost count on that so the biggest thing that helps me with being a freelancer is that I'm good with money. That is like the number one thing that has helped me. So I've always been the type of person who can learn how a system works and sort of hack it. But you really need to understand, for me, it was understanding how much money I needed to live and the cost of doing business. And once you understand that, it makes freelancing so much easier. It takes away a lot of those anxieties that people have. And that's part of why I wrote the book, because people are like often like, you know, I'm living vicariously through you and they're just like baffled by my life. But I'm like, no, it's just there's an art to it. And so that's kind of what I laid out in the book is like, this is how I save money, like in daily life. This is how I travel for cheap. And this is, you know, basically I went to graduate school and undergraduate school for free. I have no debt whatsoever, all on scholarships. I mean, I worked really hard for that. It took a lot of, actually, I've won every scholarship you can imagine from like a Budweiser scholarship to like more <laughs> journalism based scholarships and things like that. I applied for everything. So that is the biggest thing that has helped me succeed as a freelancer is being good with money and understanding my finances. The other thing is something I sort of touched on earlier earlier is just having diversity in your clients and making sure your income's coming from different places. But to actually go back and sort of answer your question about how to get clients, there are three ways to basically go about freelancing. The one is not the route that I chose because I didn't know about this when I was <laughs> younger. But if you go and you sort of become an expert in a field, a lot of magazine editors will then quit and go freelance. They built the network that they need. They can do that without having to really look for work. And I know a lot of people that have done that. The second and third way are basically the combination of what I've done is where you have a part-time job or you work part-time somewhere and then you freelance on the side or you're working full-time and freelancing on the side. And the other thing is just to save up a lot of money and have a cushion to live on while you're focusing on your work. And I've always sort of done a lot of that. So a lot of my travels and even I've been freelance full-time off and on. I've had other part-time jobs, partly just to save up a chunk of savings so that I have a cushion. So there is no, because like fear and worrying about money can really stifle your creativity. So for me, it's like, I don't have to worry about that because I know I have enough money as a cushion. But 
Um, but obviously now I'm, I'm working and I am saving money, but that's there in case I need it. In case you never know, contracts can fall through. It's something common. But for me, I, from interning and working at different publications, I, I still do a lot of freelance work for magazines that I've worked for before. So a lot of it for me is previous clients. That is the number one way I get work. And then I'm also doing research. I'm looking at who would be a good fit. Who would I like to work, work for? I do a lot of something called, I call an approach letter where you're just reaching out to people blindly and just asking how their business works. Like how do you use photographers? How do you use writers to see if I can fit in? So a lot of it is that, I mean, 80% of my work is me reaching out to people. Um, a really good story is when I lived in Sydney, um, this was 2008, I moved out there and within four months I had a meeting with every major media company in Sydney and I was just reaching out to them blindly sending emails and then when they wouldn't email me back, I called them and I got them on the phone and I got them to sit down with me in a meeting and I got to show them my work and that's how I got into Rolling Stone there is I you know, emailed the photo editor, she didn't respond, I got her on the phone and she's like, well, email me and I'm like, well, I did and so I got her to to meet with me. And she looked at my work. It was like, you know, a very short meeting. And she's like, I'd like you to shoot for us. But of course, people say that it doesn't happen right away. Any big contract I've ever gotten has taken probably six months or more. And so what happened is that I made sure that I music photography was my life for a long time. So that was a big niche that I was in at that time. So I made sure that I got into every major music festival in Australia that summer. And I was just like, hey, I'm going to be here at this festival. Do you need any coverage? And that's what led to me getting work for them. And after I got my first big assignment, they were basically like, whatever you want to shoot, just let us know. And so the time that I lived there, I was able to shoot a lot. And it was a, it was a really amazing experience. And it was all because I put forth the effort. And really, that sort of process is what I recommend for anyone, like figuring out how the system works, getting a meeting, having coffee with someone. And I've been interviewing a lot of professionals for the course that I teach and even um big ad agencies. They're like, that's the biggest way to get in the door is to have coffee with us. So that's kind of how I go about getting the clients and sort of figuring that out. And then you also meet people who help you out and you kind of figure out how they're doing their lives. And even like National Geographic photographers, several that I've worked with, they're not shooting for National Geographic all the time. They're doing things that revolve around photography, but it's not always because, you know, you're probably going to get like one or two a year assignments, I guess, from them because, you know, they're long-term things and it's not something you're going to do every single day for a year. So they have different ways of making money, but it all revolves around photography. So yeah, and I, I love that because you just essentially you're saying there's persistence and and but it's it's not like you just do it once and then it's done, right? There might be a big chunk that you do, especially in the beginning, just to get your name out there. And, and you mentioned the very first way was you could go and and work for a company and kind of cut your teeth there. And then go off on your own. If if maybe you had known that, that might have been the path you took in the beginning. Is like, hey, let me create my network, my web in the beginning. Now I can go off on my own. But if you don't, it's like you have to kind of backdoor your way into creating your network. And that is going to be a lot of just time and effort figuring out how it works. But one break, I don't even want to call it a break because that makes it almost seem lucky. But one thing can then flip everything on its head. And all of a sudden, you're getting handed down to other people who need it. Because I, I feel from an outsider perspective and from someone uh, perspective of someone who's hired a freelancers, I don't, I can't even, I just hired a writer. I have never even seen anything he wrote. Now, maybe this, you know, maybe this is good. Maybe this is bad at first, but we hired a writer because he had gotten recommended by three other people who I knew and respected. And so they were like, you have to get this guy. And I thought, okay, cool. Like, that's great. You know, it's, that speaks for itself. 
Exactly. And that can help too. I mean, I've gotten a lot of work through people that I've met. It's kind of funny how people can help you. And another thing is when someone goes from one publication to another, they often take their group of people that they hire with them, which on the reverse side of that is if your editor leaves, you might lose your work with that magazine. But I've been really good at that, like staying up with editors who have moved to other publications or when someone new comes in to a publication that I've been working with, I introduce myself, I tell them what I've been doing and I offer to help. Um, and the biggest thing about freelancing in general in life is that you should always be trying to help people and kind of looking for ways to help because that's another way to get work. But that's another thing is recommendations, like you said, are huge. And that's helped me a lot with work that I've gotten to. So that's a big part of it. And it all kind of builds up with your network as well. Yeah. The one point that you made, and I think this is for any entrepreneur, whether it be a freelancer or not, anyone going out on their own, there's that financial stress, right? And it it can kill your motivation and your creativity if and and I've been in this boat and I, I'm in this boat, you know, I don't think you're ever fully out of it. Maybe you are, but I, you know, you get good and then you're like, oh, now I'm stressed about money again. And then it come out of it a little bit, but is just feeling comfortable no matter how much you're making, but be feeling comfortable at that level to say, all right, I know this is what I have. Let me make sure I'm doing the best I can with that. So if we talk about your 30000 a year, and that was the, the number that was out there, what does a budget breakdown look like for you? And I'm sure it gets way more detailed in the book, but give us a basic budget breakdown for you of how you're able to travel and have a home base and have a, a, a regular life when you're making that amount of money. So what with that book and what I did financially is I took the money that I made in average, and it was 30000 for um, the period of years that I discussed in the book to sort of show that. And part of that is there are years where I have made a lot more than $30,000. It's just there were years where I was traveling and not working because that was sort of initially when I started traveling, I would save a lot of money and I would travel and spend that money and come back broke and then start the process again. And that was just not a viable way to live a life. And so now I've gotten to the point where I save a lot more money. But essentially... So just to clarify that, my income does vary, but that um, was based on those years average. And, and it, you know, if I'd stayed home and worked the whole year, I would have made more money. I just didn't. Sure. Right, right. <laughs> and then so budget wise, when it comes to it, ideally, depending on where I am in the world, I like to live on $1,000 a month, which is super easy in Asia and that part of the world. South America, you're probably looking at 1200 to 1500 because it's just more expensive. Europe, obviously, a lot more. So it's just one of those things where I'm just really careful about where I'm spending my money. I do the research and I kind of have an idea. I actually really do track most of the money that I spend when I travel, partly because I want to show to people people that it's real travel is accessible. It's not as expensive as you think. And also I do have a lot of jobs that do pay for my travel, which does subsidize a lot of what I'm doing. And I do try to tie in a lot of my personal travel with work travel because my flights are always covered. And that's sure. something that I encourage anyone to do. Yeah. So I'm really good at sort of hacking the system. Like all those years that I worked in Asia, my job would pay for me to fly there and I would just stay for a few months, which is which costs nothing after. And my flight back was covered by them. So there was a lot of that as well. And like while Austin, Texas is my home base, I don't have a permanent place here. Um, the beautiful thing about being in your 30s is that my friends all have houses and they all have extra rooms and they don't want roommates, but it's called the Anna room. So when I'm back in town, I can rent out the room. <laughs> so that's essentially how that works, just to be really clear and sort of transparent about that. Um, and it's one of those things that I, I have no debt, so it definitely makes it easier for me to travel. Um, before last January, I started being on the road essentially full time because I stopped teaching on campus. I went online, so I had that freedom to sort of be location independent, which I am back and forth a lot. The only sort of weird thing about what I do is there are times where I do have to be back in Texas or I do have to be in a specific place to work. And I'm okay with flying back and forth, so I try to put all of that work together. Like I've been back in the state since March, and I'll be here through 
probably September, partly because I had a South by Southwest, a huge event here. And then I've had stuff in between. So I've just stayed stateside, even though it wasn't all in Texas, um, just to kind of do that. So that's essentially how that works. Yeah. So that's how you break it down. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And then here's the, the part that I think I would love to uncover is this idea that there is, everyone knows the super budget traveler, not everyone, but, but probably, and I think maybe even Americans a little less than Europeans and Australians because they're used to that. They all take gap years and they've all been 18 or 20 and they've gone on basically no money and taking this crazy trip. Americans less, but everyone kind of has this idea of a super budget traveler. All right. Only hostels, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, whatever, you know, like getting the cheapest beer ever and, and all that kind of stuff. And then on the flip side, there's this idea of a vacation, which would be, all right, you're going to stay at a three-star hotel, four-star hotel. You're going to pay $1,000 to go international on a flight at least. All You know, you come home and you've taken a 10-day trip and it's cost you ten grand, and that's just the way it is, is what you hear. Like, oh, well, that's just the way it is, is, you know, just traveling. There is a huge gap in the middle there of of people who are making it work, you and I, who are saying, I don't want the cheapest, dirtiest hostel anymore. Uh, and, you know, maybe for a night I'd go back and do like what an experiment one more time. But yeah, I don't want that. I want to travel at a comfortable level, but I don't want to sit there and watch my bank account go down by four or five zeros for taking one trip. What does that look like for you? Where are you falling on that scale? And what and and following on that is like how are you able to do it on a decent budget but be able to have an experience that is enjoyable no that's a great question now i feel like i'm i'm definitely in between those two extremes i do splurge on certain trips another thing that i try to do is on my blog um travel like and i do basically tell people how much i spent on different trips i'm very transparent about that to kind of show them like for example an expensive trip that i did last year was i went to mongolia it's something that I've wanted to do forever. There really is no super cheap way to do it. So with airfare round trip from the U.S., it was probably about $3,500 maybe. I could be wrong because I don't have it in front of me. But I, I believe it was somewhere around there because it was $1,200 airfare, The maybe a little less. But yeah, and then because the, 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 you have to do a tour, you can't just off-road Mongolia on your own. So And that was one of the more expensive ones. But I knew that going in. I did it as cheap as I could. I had a friend with me. We had other people on the tour with us. But it was still one of the best trips of my life. And then I was in Chiang Mai in Vietnam and Southeast Asia for like December and January in there. And I was living on a, you know $1,000 a month, which um, is usually where I try to stay no matter where I am in the world. You can live on a lot less in that part of the world as well. But like in Chiang Mai, I rented an apartment. It was $300 with utilities. It was nice. I joined a gym for $90. And then I like joined a co-working space for 100 bucks. And you know, I was eating out like street food every day, which is a couple dollars, but it was still good food. I'm not eating peanut butter. You know, I will eat peanut butter for certain things, mostly on bus rides to kind of get me through. But it's not Peanut, I'll, eat, I'll eat peanut butter when I travel and it's only for when I'm on like buses all day or like I have to be up early and there's nowhere to get breakfast. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's just things like that. And literally I tracked everything I spent. It was still just under $1,000, which is a very livable wage for me. Um, I will say before I went um, last January, before I decided to be transient completely and not be have a sort of main base in Austin, I, I'd saved about $50,000, which I still have in my savings. So I had that as a cushion. I did have to dip into that last year because some things fell through contract wise. And I did take 
a lot of time to kind of work on the book and stuff. And I wanted that freedom. So that savings kind of gave me that peace of mind and that freedom. Um, my like goal now is sort of more long-term savings, which I do have like, uh, you know, an IRA and things like that. But that's essentially something that really kind of helped me to be really transparent. I even talk about this in the book, how much I had before this trip. I, you know, I'd worked multiple jobs, like crazy 14 hour days before I left for like two years to save all that money. And then just kind of be in a position where I felt good with a career context that I had and what I had set up for work that I would be okay. Do you prefer that lifestyle, the kind of the cyclical, all right, let me work really hard and then let me take a break? Not that it's all 100% one way and zero, like 100% work, no fun, 100% fun, no work. But do you prefer almost like batching it and, and, and looking at it and saying, all right, I'm going to work really hard for X amount of time and then I'm going to go off and do a project like my book? Or... Or would you rather and are you looking and leaning towards saying, well, I want to have a little more of a balance. Like now that I have that savings, I feel good. Let me try to figure out a way to to balance it out a little bit, which is which is ideal for you or which do you work better at? I, well, it used to be where I would work really hard and then I would just travel and not kind of work while I was gone. So I'm trying to have more of a balance. So it's a little bit of, you know, I am doing certain things where I'm not working, but not to the extreme that I was prior. So even when I was working on the book, the book was work. I was doing other projects in between other freelance assignments, but it, I did take a lot of time for the book that I could have used to generate income in other ways. So I'd like to have a little more balance. Like this year it's been, you know, I took a couple weeks and I went to see my parents and I didn't really work while I was there with them. I was like, this is a slow time. I've gotten my projects done before and the stuff after I'll do after I go visit them. So things like that. And so I tried to have more of a balance. Like the last two weeks I was on a road trip in Utah and I didn't work well, I ended up getting an assignment while I was out there randomly because someone found out I was there. But <laughs> other than that, um, it wasn't really work. It was, it was just kind of having fun and shooting. And that's stuff that I can use for other projects and potentially to make money off of later. But it was just traveling. Yeah. So, so and, more balance now. Yeah. I, I, and you know what's funny is I love that. I like working project-based too. It's, it's not exactly the same way you're doing it because I'm not contracted by an, someone else. But I almost try to set things up and say, here's a big project. Boom knock it out, then relax a bit. Again, not 100 and zero, but maybe 80, 20, maybe 70, 30, where you're saying like, hey, I'm cool with working hard. I don't want it to be all my life. I just want it to like work hard, work hard towards a goal and then step back a little bit. And I, I found that for me, that is certainly one way that I enjoy life more because I, I do like having that light at the end of the tunnel. And I also find myself to be more effective when I'm doing that. Mm -hmm. No, I agree as well. I, I don't think that, plus I'm not a person that can just sit around, you know, either. I'm always uh, <laughs> kind of busy. So that kind of helps. But I find a more of a balance is better. And I try to do it so that I'm not, it's like worn out either way from traveling too much or from working too much. So there's a decent balance. Yeah. What are some of the things that you've had to give up, I would say, in life? And I use that in quotes because it's been a, been a choice, but with any type of lifestyle, you know, obviously the travel is a lot different than probably your, your quote unquote, again, more air quotes, right? Normal friends, you get to have this <laughs> life of freedom, but there is certain things that you've said, all right, well, I'm prioritizing travel on this life of freedom over X, Y, and Z. What are some of those things that if someone's looking to get into this lifestyle a little bit that they should consider, like make it with a clear mind and say, well, these are the things that you are going to give up a bit, not fully, but you're going to give up a little bit in order to have this lifestyle. And you have to weigh that out to see if it's worth it for you. 
So one thing that people always say to me, they're like, oh, well, I'm so close to my family. I can't be gone for that long. But honestly, I probably see my family more than most people because I like last year I was visiting my parents throughout the year for about three months total. My dad makes 18th century furniture for a living and I like to make furniture too. So I try to spend time in the shop with him. So that's definitely been a priority for me. And part of why I went freelancing is that I can go back there and, you know, he's 70 now and, and build furniture with him because that's something that I enjoy. Um, so that's another reason I've kind of done this, but I'm not, you know, I haven't been home for Christmas in years. I was there actually, I think two years ago for Christmas, but I, I miss birthdays and holidays and things like that. But I am really good at sending cards and postcards. And there's an app called Postagram where you can have cards delivered on the exact day. So I'm never really missing holidays, but I'm not, I do miss people's weddings. It's rare that I ever go to a wedding unless I happen to be in the country because I can't, I mean, even though I love my friends, I can't justify two grand in airfare to fly to a wedding um, if, unless I have, you know, enough notice and things like that. So there's, there's situations like that where I am missing that, but people, and I'm very clear about that. And, you know, people are like, you know, they understand that's who I am and I try to be there for what I can. But another big part of my traveling is it's based, a lot of it now is based around people and friends and visiting people that I know. So I'm never really on my own, even though a lot of my travel is solo. So I'm going to visit friends constantly. So I'm all, people are seeing me at least a couple times a year, if not, you know, like, more people that I'm not as close to, I'll see them every few years just because I'm passing through. Um, but I'm very, very good at keeping in touch with people. And the one thing that does make this type of life easier for me is that I am able to pick back up with people like no time has passed. And so that's really helped. But I will say that that's a big thing for people. And that's something I guess I have given up, but I do try to spend a lot of time. I, I try to make up for not being there for certain for the holidays, just being there. I try to be home when the weather's nice too. I hate winter. So I don't want to be anywhere in Christmas in America. So <laughs> I come back in April when it's nice. So that's definitely one thing I will say that like there's getting mail and stuff like that can be annoying <laughs> when you're gone and in situations like that. So you are, you know, it's like, people ask where I live and it, it can be complicated for different things. And I'm like, well, I don't really have a home. And, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's kind of funny, but I'd say that's definitely a big thing for some people, but for me that it works well and I kind of make up for it in other ways. Have you changed over the, I mean, obviously you've changed, but I mean, have you changed over the last 10 or 11 years of this lifestyle where certain things that maybe you didn't care about as much, you care about more. And are there certain things that, Maybe you thought, like, example, I, I know I've been this way, like, oh, I'm going to miss this person's wedding. I can't believe I'm missing it. And now it's just a, like, okay, I, I, you know, I've missed a wedding here or there. It's not a big deal. I don't care as much as I did before, not because I don't care about them, but because I know when I come home, when I come back, I'm going to make an effort to see them. It's going to be as important and as impactful, you know, than just some regular day that all their friends or family are there. So have you seen maybe your priorities shift a little bit over this 10-year time span? In some ways, yes. And, and to kind of go back to what you said about the weddings, that's exactly kind of how it's been is that we definitely make time for people and other times if I can't be there for certain things. For me, I travel a lot slower now than when I was younger. I like to sit in places a little bit longer, you know, in, in that type of situation. I will say that like, I feel like I eat better. I'm healthier about that type of thing. Um, working out is definitely a huge deal for me. The older I get, it's better for me just physically, mentally. And I'm a photographer and I'm a very tiny person. So like I need to be strong to carry all my gear. So like working out at the gym is a huge deal for me, like working muscles and stuff. So I always join a gym no matter where I am. And that's something that I never would have paid for when I was younger. But obviously I've got more money in my budget now, so it's not a problem. My friends made fun of me because I paid $90 for this fancy gym in Chiang Mai, but all the cheaper gyms just weren't what I wanted. I'm like, it makes me happy and I have the money. So what does it matter? You right, know, it's not right. like, it's not a huge financial burden, but so that's definitely something that I do a lot more. Um, I find, and then 
and just the types of things I do, I guess, as well, like I will still stay in hostels because that's how you meet people when you're by yourself. But I do tend to stay in nicer ones. I avoid party hostels and stuff because I'm not 18. You know, I'm not. <laughs> so I think it's, the way that I, I travel has changed a little bit there and in that type of situation. So I think um, that's some of the ways that it's traveled. And I feel it was funny going back to Australia this year for the first time in 10 years. And like when I was living in Australia, I was probably about as broke as I'd ever been. And it was just kind of funny that seeing how it changed and just kind of seeing what it's like to be there. And I'm like, Oh, I can afford to go out to eat now. And, and just, I have friends there, friends that I, I knew when I lived there and friends that I've met from traveling. And so it's just kind of gives you a different perspective on the city. And I was kind of nostalgic to be here. And it was just kind of funny. I just kind of ma- reminded me of how much I'd grown and all the things that I've wanted to do that I talked about then I've kind of done. And so that was kind of a nice realization as well. So I think a lot of it's just been the, how I travel, just going a little slower. I'm probably not doing I'm a little bit better about like making sure I'm a little more comfortable in the fact that, okay, am I really going to do this 36 hour bus ride? Or am I just going to take the one hour flight? You know, <laughs> that type of thing. Um, a little bit better now than I probably would have been when I was younger. So. Yeah. I, and that's what I love about this idea of the travel sweet spot, right? Is that it, it's going to change. Inevitably it will change for everyone. Typically, as you get older, it changes more. Like if you have cost, convenience, and comfort, you start skewing more towards the convenience and comfort and not caring as much about cost. One, you, you might have more money, but two, you're just sitting there thinking, well, I will pay. Like your, your I, example, I will pay $90 for this gym. Is that a crazy amount of money in Thailand for a gym? Sure, because your rent is 300 But because your rent is 300 now you can go to a kick-ass gym that you really, really love instead of a $10 gym that you're not going to use, right? So it's like, well, then really, where is the better value? 90 that you're going to use or 10 that you would never use, right? So I, I love this idea of the sweet spot because it's it's shifting, it's changing um, as you change. And I, I'm with you that there are things that I do now that... 10 years ago, I would have been like, there is absolutely no way I'm spending money on that. And now I look at it, I'm like, there is no way I'm not spending money on that. And and that is an example. One of those is, is yeah, a, a crazy bus route or, you know, six six connections to get to a place when I could have one and I could spend a hundred more dollars. I, I think that it just is shifting. So, so those are some of the ways that it shifted for you. What do you see, though, even today as some of the biggest money sucks that you see people like, I want to say mistakes people are making with their money when they're traveling because you've shifted and you said, all right, I'm spending more, not super budget, but here are some areas that I still, you know, maybe cling to as like, all right, I'm not going to spend a lot on this because I know there's a way to do it that's cheaper and maybe just as good. Mm-hmm. So two things that that's a great question. So with the like the gym sort of thing we were talking about, like if I'm spending a lot on one thing, I will make up for it somewhere else. Like maybe I'm eating street food instead of going to somewhere fancy to eat. So I do kind of make up for splurges in that regard too. But what you were saying, the biggest way that people can sort of save money where they're maybe not noticing that they're they're losing money would be just travel banking, making sure you have the right bank accounts and credit cards. Like this is the biggest issue when I travel that especially when I first started traveling was that every time you go to the ATM, the ATM's charging you a fee and your bank's charging you a fee. And that drove me crazy. And especially day, in Thailand. Like oh. I've noticed it was what, like a hundred and it, it, it was like a six US dollars every time I had to take money out in Thailand. I thought six US dollars is like four meals here. I it was crazy. 
in, in Argentina, it's $10 every time you take money out. And you can only take out $300 at a time. So the way that I got around this is a friend of mine in Singapore, an expat, was like, you need the Charles Schwab checking account. So Charles Schwab has this free investor checking account, no minimums, no fees. And they refund you every ATM fee that is charged to you by a bank overseas. And they don't charge you fees. So not only am I getting refunded $40 a month, when I travel, but that's, you know, that's not including the 40 or 50 bucks I would have paid the ATM. So it's roughly a hundred bucks a month I'm saving. Plus there's no foreign transaction fees. So just having the right bank accounts can make a huge difference. And the same thing goes into credit cards and making sure you're not paying the foreign transaction fees there and just being really good with miles, which I know you're you know, obviously a big fan of the cards and the miles and being really good with that is definitely the biggest thing. Cause a lot of people don't do that. And like any friend, any friend that comes to me saying, Hey, I'm going somewhere. I'm like, okay, get these credit cards. Here's the, here's like the, here's the bank account you need. You need to open it now. It's free. There's no reason for you not to do it. You should, it's going to save you a lot of money. And it doesn't like, it's my main banking account now. Cause I just love them, but you could just have this account and transfer money into it when you travel and it will save you so much money. So there's things like that. I think also just People go for the convenient route instead of like maybe walking or something. Cause I like to walk. I like to see an area. So I will get up and I don't mind walking. Like in Chiang Mai, I would walk 30 minutes because getting a taxi there is a nightmare. You're waiting for the Uber forever. Or the grab is the, what they call them there. And sometimes the song tail doesn't go where you want it to go. And I don't mind walking. So I think a lot of people will, will, will kind of lose money there. And for me, I just enjoy it and that type of thing. And you can eat really well on a budget in most parts of the world without splurging. And I'm really good about finding like happy hours and meals and discount days and things like that, that I think other people don't necessarily see. And another thing is you really sort of need to prioritize like what you want to do. Everybody has a different interest. And I think people feel like they have to do certain things, even though they're really not interested in that topic. Like I'm not a big fan of museums, maybe because I've been to too many or I've just been to too many bad ones. And so I just know what I like and I really do my research and I'm like, okay, that's not something that I think I'm going to like. Like this place doesn't have an exhibit on something that I'm interested in. So I'm not going to go and spend that money. So I think that's part of it as well. And people do like to do tours. Oh, a great example was in Vietnam this uh, in January in January. So the Chu Chi tunnels are famous. It's all the tunnels where the, the Viet Cong were living. And there's two different sets of tunnels that you can go to. And you can do a day tour, which I think was like $50. But the tunnels they take you to are the tourist tunnels. And they're like enlarged for tourists. But they're like some of the original tunnels that aren't, uh, that weren't enlarged are a little further out. And you can get there by a public bus. And I think we, so I'm, I met some people that figured out how to go. And I like made friends with these other random people at the hospital and was like, hey, do you want to go with me? And so I mean, we spent, it was a whole day and it was one of the best days of my whole trip in Vietnam. It was on an adventure. We were on two different buses. They drop you on the side of the road. You walk to these tunnels. It was amazing. You go back and stand by the road and hope that the bus comes. And we made our way back. And I mean, we got stuck in like the worst traffic ever, but it was some of the, the best stories from the whole trip. And I mean, we, we spent like absolutely no money on that whole day. I think the, the bus fare was like less than a dollar or two. So, and even getting into the tunnel was just like a few bucks. So the whole thing was like less than like probably between five and ten dollars of that. I don't even think it was that much. And so there's things like that where it's more of an adventure. But for me, it was way better than doing the tour. And so there's things like that, that if you just go and haggle your way and make your own tour and go straight to like the boat or to the bus, um, like even in uh, the on the Mekong in, in Vietnam, we went down to, we were in Cantao uh, and, and we went down to get our own boat ride instead of paying for a tour and same sort of thing. It was a great experience. We had a lot of friends we'd kind of made together to kind of do this. And so I think doing that can also be a way to have a great and more authentic experience and save you a lot of money. Yeah, I think doing it, if people are nervous, doing it with a group or at least another person or two certainly can waylay those fears a bit because now now it is an adventure. Now, you know, it's cool to do something on your own, but it's also scary. If there's like three of you like, 
let's just try this out. What's the worst that happened? We get on the wrong bus. We're together. We're fine. You know, this and that. We don't find the tunnel. Who knows? Um, yeah, and I think that's a great example of the cost, convenience, and comfort where it doesn't shift as much. Like, is it more convenient to go on a tourist trip and go see those tunnels? Sure, but it costs so much more, and it's it's not as authentic, and it's not it's not an adventure. And I think sometimes those are the things that, for me, spur me to travel even more. Those are the days you remember when you just did something like that. You said, I'm going to go a bit off the beaten path and figure it out myself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. What do you now think, like when it comes to your travel and you're sitting here you're saying, all right, I still want to do it on a budget, but I, I do have more expendable income. To you, is it still, like, is part of it the game of getting the value or and and or and saving the money like if you i guess my question is you don't have to save money right like when you're when you're younger you have no money like i if i spend this like i have to go home so i have to but there's still that built in thought in my head of well i don't want like i don't want to not even get ripped off cuz i don't want to spend more than i have to and it's almost like a fun game for me sometimes heather might disagree that it's fun to say i want to make sure that i'm getting the best value possible when i travel even though we have more money that if if i did end up spending 10 15 20 bucks somewhere where i didn't i, I maybe could have saved it it's not going to be the end of the world do you still have that mindset a little bit do you think that's like something that's ingrained that will just continue on like for the rest of your travel life I feel like I have the same mindset that I've always had, especially when I was younger for traveling. I I will splurge a little bit here and there from a more, it's more of a realistic, okay, thinking things through standpoint, okay, this is what I should do. And even just saving time sometimes and just safety. Safety is always a concern. I will pay more to, to be safe. But for the most part, it's the same sort of mindset that I've always had. I do sort of live by, I mean, I was still trying to live on the same amount of money traveling as then as I did now. And so I do kind of have that same mindset. I try, I try to save 50% of what I make. I'm pretty extreme there. It doesn't always happen, but I try. So I'm trying to sort of live by that same mindset and save as much as I can and get the best value possible. Um, so, you know, maybe I am paying a little more for things, but I'm trying to get the best value I can in that situation. I am an expert negotiator when it comes to anything. Um, the streets of India was the best teacher when it, I worked in India for five summers too. So I, I'm really good at negotiating and I can haggle with the best of them. So there's, I'm definitely really good at finding ways to do that. And so I think that that's a skill that I will continue to always do that traveling. I was in Easter Island. This is a great story. And we wanted to hike the North shore and they were saying, which is the part that doesn't have any roads. They haven't like all of the Moai are laying down. They haven't sort of restored those, um, statues. And we wanted to do that because it seemed like the cool, like, you know, untouched part of the Island, but all the tours were like, it was like a couple, it was like 150 a person or something. It was outrageous. And so I went around and I found us our local guide for $80 for two of us to split. And it was still a great experience. And we got to do it. Cause I was just like, we're not hiking, but a few miles. And like, we technically do, could do it on our own, but then they're saying you shouldn't, or there's a law where you can, I couldn't remember why we couldn't do it on our own, but I was just like, it just seems insane to pay that amount of money. So I'm able to kind of figure those situations out still. And I still use those same tactics and we had a great time and we still got to see a great part of the Island. So that's something that I will continue to always do, but I am mindful of the cost of everything. And I do continue to track it when I travel. Partly I don't track my spending in the U S I kind of have an eye. 
Another thing for me is I kind of have an idea in my head of what everything should cost, especially in places I've been or you sort of learn and you're like, okay, I want my accommodation. Usually I want my accommodation to be under $15. Like when I'm in Asia, obviously, well, in South America and Asia, it should be under, it should be less than that. So it just kind of depends on the situation. So I have these like mindsets in my head of like, oh, I should spend this much roughly for a meal. Like in the US, I like to spend under 20 bucks for certain things. So when I'm going to buy those things, I keep that in mind. And I think having those set spending limits, which is something that I talk about in the book, really does help. And that's some way that I continue to live. Like I have an idea of, okay, a meal should cost this much. Like in Thailand, street food should be like literally like 60 to 80 baht, you know? And so I try to like have that in my mind when I'm buying things and like, I'm like, oh, that place is expensive. And sort of, and that sort of does sort of form what I do in my decisions. Yeah. You sound like a great travel partner. I love that idea. You're like, I'm just going to like a nice compromise, right? Is, Hey, we want to do this. We could do it on our own with the Easter Island example, but maybe it's illegal. Maybe it's just not not really right to do it. You know, they tell you you can and you do want to give back to the local economy. But heck no, I'm not going to spend $150. Let me go and find someone for 80 for two people. So I'm going to spend 40 and and have that same experience. Speaking of Easter Island, I don't know if this is on your list, but what are some of your favorite places that you have been? And I know that some people get all like <laughs> up in arms when you ask this. And I'm like, no, I'm going to hold your feet to the fire. There are definitely places that, that mm-hmm. I think are travel favorites. What have been some of the ones for you? So I would say Argentina. I just love it. Buenos Aires is one of my favorite cities in the world. It's like a Latin Europe. It's like this great intoxicating city. I love the food. Um, I just, it's just steak and it's cheap and wine and it's just so, so good. And I, I love Argentina. I was just there in January of last year. I spent a whole month there and hopefully I'll be back again next year. I'd like to go for part of the winter. I, I love Thailand. Thailand's been a big part of my life because I was based there and worked there and I have so many friends there and I taught English there briefly. It's just, it's kind of like home to me. So I'm going to make Thailand part of my base moving forward. I absolutely loved Mongolia. It was literally it was an insane place because it's so off the beaten path, but it, it's got the infrastructure for tourism, but it hasn't been spoiled by it. And so it's super fascinating. The people are so friendly. It's so safe. And I really want to go back to Mongolia. So I'm a big fan of that as well. Um, so I'd say those would be like maybe top three. Nice. Uruguay. All right. Yeah. Sorry. Uruguay is a place that a lot of people don't go that's underrated, but is also amazing. It's a little expensive, but um, it's, it's pretty amazing. Okay. So we have never touched the South American continent and... Obviously, it's it's right up there in Buenos Aires and Argentina and Uruguay come up all the time for me. Uruguay always comes up because it like no one ever talks about it. And so I don't know because I haven't been there, but I always thought, oh, Argentina is right there. It's got to be almost as cool if it's right next. You know, if you're sandwiched between Brazil and Argentina, you probably got some cool stuff going on in your country, right? At least at least from like a natural wonders perspective and beaches and stuff like that. So um, great to hear that you've had very good experience in both of those in Buenos Aires and, and Argentina as a whole, and then Uruguay as well. Um, because that is, uh, that is a place that I think for Heather and I are s- super high up there, especially we don't like winners either. So flip it <laughs> off and, uh, yeah, go Southern hemisphere during our winter and then come back when it starts getting nice around April. Right. That's my philosophy for life. <laughs> yeah. We'll probably be on the same plane then. Uh, <laughs> what has been one of your biggest travel mishaps? Because you've been traveling a lot now for the last 10, 11, 12 years. What has been one that sticks in your mind is either something that was brought about by you possibly or totally out of your control, but you're like, this makes an awesome story. In hindsight, maybe not as cool of a story when it was happening. I... 
Well, there's different things. I did have my purse stolen twice traveling two different places, Barcelona and Thailand. And both times I was just young and silly and just not paying attention. But I will say that I learned from that. And someone tried to pickpocket my phone out of my purse on a train in Buenos Aires. And I was able to stop it and get it back sort of based on the things that I learned from that. So I'm very, very aware of my surroundings. I don't go out at night with certain things in cities where pickpocketing and like Barcelona, your stuff's going to get stolen no matter who you are. They're just so good there. No matter if you're in a McDonald's or if you're just, you know, out at night, there, there's always a chance for that there. So I think that I've learned a lot from that, but it was just, in hindsight, it was silly. You know, it's a good story if I were to go through the whole thing, but it's just me just not paying attention and being young. That's just the simple part, but I've learned a lot from it. And I definitely was able to, the funny thing is the guy in Buenos Aires that tried to steal my phone. It was one of those situations where this guy was acting weird and the guy was like profusely sweating, like in that Marvel movie, I think it was Civil War where Captain America's in the elevator and the bad guy were sweating. It literally was like I was in the scene for that movie. And I was like, something is not right. This guy is being weird. And the minute I noticed that he tried to grab my, my phone out of my purse and like, well, he got into my purse and I like yanked it back and like got my phone back and like basically cornered the guy and almost jumped on him like a spider monkey. And like, cause I was like, you are not taking my phone. And he threw it on the ground and I got it back. And it was just whole, this whole ordeal. But I learned a lot from that. Um, so even going into situations, I'm very aware of people's actions. And at night I make sure I only have what I need and nothing excess. Cause the first time my purse got stolen, I had everything in my purse just cause I'd been living in Australia and right before, and no one has, you know, no one has to worry about that there. <laughs> so, um, so that's definitely some of the things I, I've had food poisoning more times than any human should ever have food poisoning. I literally, I, it's terrible. I've literally had to hike back down a mountain just so sick. I could barely walk. I, I did. Where was that? Where was that? Mostly India. I did get food poisoning. I was going to say, you spent five summers in (laughs) India. So I'm seeing a theme of you having a lot of food poisoning and spending time in India. And then I got food poisoning. Oh my gosh. Like four times in April last year. In South America, it was terrible. I was in Colombia for part of it, and then um, I had flown to the Galapagos, and I was like, like right before my trip, because you have to go on a trip in the Galapagos. It's hard to do it on your own. I'd gotten a really good discount d- deal to go, and I'm like laying in this fancy hotel in Guayaquil, Ecuador, like hugging this pillow, thinking about all the miserable things that had happened to me in my life, and how I'd rather be reliving everything like a root canal instead of being right there at that moment. And I almost didn't go on the trip because I was so sick, and I, I made it. I got to the boat, and everybody was like, barely walking to the ship. <laughs> everyone's like are you okay and finally after a couple days I was okay but four times in a month I mean I don't wish that on anyone I don't know what it was or what I did but I will never go back to Santa Marta Colombia again in my life (laughs) I'd done a trek and um and some other stuff there and I don't know what I ate or what I did that that did that but um four times in a month that was terrible I I wrote a blog post about it I was just like you know I would just have these like these like chats with my stomach and I'd be like please don't embarrass me. Please don't embarrass me before I go out to do things. It's like, if you're going to be sick, now is the time. It's just, it was terrible. And I will say one of the craziest things that's probably happened is I was in India once walking down the street and I, you know, it was wet out and I walked across the sewer drain and my foot slipped between the bars because my foot was so, thank God it was only knee deep. So I didn't break my leg, but my, it was so gross. And like, these kind Tibetan boys retrieved my flip-flop from the black muck, but my, my, my leg was so scraped up. I looked like I'd been beaten. It was terrible. I couldn't like really sit like normally, like when I was like sitting down trying to sit Indian style, I couldn't really move my leg that way for a while. <laughs> so I, I've had issues like that. I did step in another similar hole in Bali. I don't know how this happened in uh, February and I didn't break my leg. Thankfully, it's one of those things where I have all this horribly bad things terrible things that happen that are ridiculous, but I, I live, I don't, <laughs> I don't break my leg. Right. Just, right. It's like, <laughs> it's like only, only really bad for a day or two when it could have been a month or two. Okay. 
So, so food poisoning of- and, tr- and, and slipping and tripping into holes seem to be tough for you. <laughs> yeah, apparently it's a theme. I have a very humorous kind of bad luck in life. <laughs> so... What do you have coming up in the pipeline, both like professionally and, and kind of the work that you have coming up? And then also personally, what are some of the trips that you'll be taking and some of the things that you're either going to, places you're going to be going to or places that you're thinking like it was with Mongolia? All right, this is at the top of my list. I'm making this happen. So I'm actually working in Alaska a lot this summer. I'm running some. I'm a photo instructor for uh, Lindblad, Lindblad Expeditions, which is part of National Geographic Expeditions. So I'm going to be in Alaska a lot, which I'm excited because I've never been to Alaska. And then I, after that, I will be. I've got to be in Austin for some work projects. But then I'm going to Portugal in September. I've actually never been, and it's been high on my list forever. So I'm going to go for about a month, maybe a little more. I might do a little bit of. Eastern Europe too, depending on the weather. Cause when it gets cold, then I'm going to fly back to Thailand and be in Thailand for part of the winter. Um, cause I'm going to work on, there's some projects I'd like to apply for some photo grants through Nat Geo for a couple different things. I don't want to go into too many details cause they're still trying to work out the, uh, logistics of how I would do them, but I'm focusing on doing a couple grants. So that's sort of my goal to work on that while I'm in, um, while I'm in Thailand for the fall and hopefully Argentina, maybe for January, February, we'll see. It depends on a couple projects for life and I don't know. I'm still trying to get my sort of schedule for the trips I'll be running next year to see where I'll be based. So I'm very excited. Nice. So it's open ended, but you've got a few <laughs> a few flagpoles in there, right? Like Portugal, you're going Alaska. I mean, doesn't sound like a bad gig. Thailand, maybe Argentina. You're just making that uh, making that loop, having that good life, huh? Just trying to stay warm. I don't like winter. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Anna, well, thank you so much for joining me today and, and showing people through your book. And guys, pick that book up. I'll, I'll let you tell people how they can do it in just a second. But showing people that you don't have to make a lot of money to be rich in travel experiences and that no matter how much you are making, there are certain, I, I want to say systems and structures that you can put in place to make sure that you can still prioritize travel. Whether you're making 30K, 50K, 100K, doesn't matter. You could say, hey, this is the system that I want to follow and here's how I'm going to be able to prioritize the things I want. And, and for people listening, obviously travel is a big part of that. So remind people one more time how they can get a hold of you. How can they find the book? So you can find me at travellikeanna.com. That is my blog. The book is available on Amazon. If you just search for Good With Money on Amazon, it will take you straight to the book. I'm actually on Twitter as Travel Like Anna as well. And on Instagram, it's actually my name, which is Anna Mazurik Photo. So you can find me there. Links to all of that are on the blog as well. Um, thank you for having me, Travis. This has been great. Yeah. And we will, of course, as always, link everything up that we talked about in the show notes. You can get that extra pack of peanuts.com slash show. So we'll have all Anna's stuff there. And yeah, Anna, I just want to say thanks again. I It's been a little while since we hung out at TravelCon, but we had a great conversation there. So it's been fun to have you come back on and uh, and chat about this. And I, I really do love the mission that you're on where you're saying, I just want to help people, whether that be your students and you're saying, hey, I want you to have a little bit more of a business mind when you're getting into this, or hey, you're a traveler. I want to help you be able to to really make this goal that a lot of people have as a, as a life goal, right? To, to just travel more. And it seems a little abstract. You're saying, hey, let's make it a little concrete. Let's dive into the numbers. Let's get a little dirty here. Let's figure out how you're going to be able to do it. So I just want to thank you for that. And thanks for the book. Um, anything that inspires people to get out there and travel more and then shows them a way to do it. That's a win in my book. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. Don't forget, grab a copy of Anna's book. We'll have everything linked up in the show notes there. 
Thank you for tuning in today for your continued support. That makes us number one ready travel podcast on iTunes. And until next time, happy free travels. I'll show you Paris.